says in verse 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself did not baptize but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again to Galilee. But he needed to go through Samaria. So when he came to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph, now Jacob's well was there, Jesus, therefore being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour, or about noon. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given to you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well, and drank from it himself as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. And the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. And Jesus said to her, Go and call your husband and come here. And the woman said, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, You have said well. I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. In that you spoke truly. And the woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. And Father, we humbly ask as we submit our hearts now to your authoritative word that your Holy Spirit would just prepare each and every one of us accordingly for this portion of scriptures we study it this morning. Lord, you know what that means for me and for every person standing here in this room. So we ask now, prepare us. Lord, make us alert and attentive. Quicken us by your Holy Spirit to be receptive to what you would want to say to us, that we might hear the voice of God speaking directly to our hearts this morning. Bless your word, Lord. Teach us by your Spirit's ministry, we ask in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen, amen. You may be seated. You know, to what extent do you think God would be willing to go to reach just one soul? I think when you look at this passage here in John chapter 4, it's a great picture for us of the concern that God has for each and every individual that's on this planet. And in fact, we see Jesus' concern here for one person's soul, and we again realize about Jesus that he was not so much concerned, if you would, in having or obtaining popularity with crowds as much as he seems a lot more concerned about personally helping individuals who had legitimate needs. And I appreciate this about Jesus, that he is the individual who we have as the greatest example of ministry and some of the most fantastic ministry we see Jesus doing was just with individuals. It wasn't with crowds. It wasn't in public settings where he could get notoriety or recognition. It was just taking time to inconvenience himself or to reach out to an individual who had a need at hand. And Jesus took the time to have a conversation with him or to interact with him. And this passage reveals to us Jesus helping another individual. And we see as well how he went about it. In fact, it's a great chapter. I'd encourage you if you have a heart for evangelism or witnessing, certainly you could use this chapter and just go through it and learn a lot of great lessons about personal evangelism but let's look at it together beginning there in verse one it says therefore when the lord knew that the pharisees had heard that jesus had made and baptized more disciples than john and john tells us though jesus himself did not baptize but he left that responsibility with his disciples he left Judea at this point now and departed again to Galilee. So Jesus here, look, it says he seeks to, I would say, avoid a situation that posed, if you would, potential conflict. And he now travels up, it tells us, into northern Israel. As we've seen and discussed before, the Pharisees, though they were the established religious leaders of that day, unfortunately, 
they did very little to actually help people spiritually. In fact, rather than help people spiritually, you read the Gospels, you can tell they actually caused some of the greatest resistance to our Lord Jesus and some of the greatest resistance to his ministry to help individuals with the things of God. And as they now get word, we read here in verses 1 through 3, as they get word that Jesus is following and his disciples, his public ministries now began, and it's beginning to grow more rapidly and disciples and followers are accumulating to Jesus more quickly than John the Baptist, whose ministry is now fading off the scene at this point. Jesus, knowing the hearts of these religious leaders and their agenda and their method of operation, he discerns apparently that they would now use that kind of a situation as a doorway, if you would, to cause competition uh, or, if you would, maybe jealousy and division. So Jesus, being strongly opposed to competition and division among God's people, it's at this point now, not wanting those circumstances to transpire and allow that to happen, Jesus just wisely departs from the area and he minimizes the opportunity for any potential unhealthy thing happening or a problem arising and people becoming stumbled. So rather than remain there and allow problems to transpire, Jesus just leaves Judea, it says, and he heads up toward Galilee. And I think this is an important reminder for us because Jesus shows us here that sometimes the wise solution when you can forecast a problem is potentially going to happen or you can sense mm, this seems like that this situation become problematic. I think sometimes it's wisdom when you sense an unhealthy situation to just arise and to humbly depart. That it's a wise thing at times to just say, you know, if I stay in this situation or I stay in this circumstance or, or I, the best thing to do would maybe I should just remove myself from the situation. And if I just remove myself from the situation, I can diminish the problem arising before it does. So Jesus now leaves, we read here verse 3, leaves Judea and he heads for Galilee. Now, Israel is about the size of New Jersey, if you ever look at it on the map. And just like in our state of New Jersey here, we have sort of, if you would, three regions. We have South Jersey, we refer to Central Jersey, and North Jersey. Much the same in Israel on that day. Israel was sort of broken up into three regions. In the south, you had what was referred to as Judea. That would be southern Israel. In the central part of the country, that was referred to as Samaria, which we're reading about here. And then the northern region of Israel was referred to as Galilee. So when we read here, Jesus is leaving Judea and heading toward Galilee. It's telling us he's leaving from the south and he's heading to the north of Israel. Now, verse 4 tells us this. It says, but he needed to go through Samaria. Remember, that was the central region. Now, here's what's interesting. Granted, Samaria was the central part of Israel, but it was not completely necessary, if you would, for Jesus to take that short and straight route directly through the center of the country to get up north. In fact, there were actually a few different routes that Jews would take typically to go from south to north, depending upon, number one, their travel needs practically, and then number two, the level of animosity that they felt towards the Samaritan people. One route, for example, which was typical from south to north, is they would first go east, they would cross over the Jordan River, they would go up through Perea, and then when they got to the north, they would turn back into the area of Galilee. Another route was to sort of go the other direction. Sometimes they would just go completely as far westward as they could. When they got to the Mediterranean Sea, they would then go up the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea as far as they could to the west, and then they would turn inward once they got to the north, again, sort of circling around both of those ways. They were circling around Samaria. The one other third option, which was the straightest and quickest route, was just to go directly through Samaria itself. The problem was many Jews did not want to take that short direct route through Samaria because of a long-standing ethnic and racial tension, probably better word to say hatred, that existed between the Jews and the Samaritans. This was a deep-seated hatred for these two people groups that had existed for many, many years. And because of that, Jews didn't want to even interact with Samaritans. So sometimes they would inconvenience themselves and literally go out and around the border of the country just to completely avert any interaction with the Samaritan people. And let me briefly explain the reason why. Samaritans 
were basically sort of, if you would, a mixed ethnic race of people. They were part Jew and they were part Gentile. The people group of the Samaritans grew out of the Assyrian captivity of the 10 northern tribes about 700 years prior to this time. And when the Assyrians would capture a group of people as they did the 10 northern tribes, what their typical protocol was is they would, to avoid people groups they conquered from regaining strength and revolting, they would typically then intermix different nationalities and people groups from territories they conquered and they would put them in foreign lands intermixed by nationality to sort of, if you would, keep them from regaining strength and trying to then revolt against them once they've been conquered. And thus you have basically what happened. This is how the Samaritan people became intermixed ethnically, part Jewish, part Gentile. And as a result of the Jews then returning back to their homeland after their time in captivity, when they came back to the land of Israel, they rejected the Samaritan people as genuine Jewish brethren because they couldn't prove their lineage or their genealogy. So because of that, they weren't received as Jewish brethren. And the Samaritan people wanting to keep some of the Jewish customs as they were part Jewish, still claiming Jacob as their patriarch and the father of their people, they then just established their own religious practices and services on Mount Gerizim, which became sort of a mixed religious system. It had some Jewish customs of Yahweh God, but it had a lot of pagan practices that were somewhat involved with it as well. And as you can understand in the mind of a Jew, that just further inflamed their prejudice towards these people because now they felt that their God was being defiled and their worship was being defiled. So I want you to picture in your mind as much as you can the extent of a, a incredible amount of animosity, hatred, and tension that existed between these two people ethnically. There was religious and ethnic and racial tension that had lasted for centuries between these two people groups. And this is the setting now and why verse 4 is very unusual where you read that Jesus, it says, went straight through Samaria to go from the south to the north. It says there that Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Now the question is, why really was that? Because again, as I said, it was not because it was the only route to get there. It was not even the typical route of a Jew to normally do that. The reason we begin to see is because there was a divine appointment that his father in heaven had set for him to meet with this immoral Samaritan woman to reach her soul and to minister to her the love and the truth of God because Jesus loves and wants to reach all of mankind. And this passage is a beautiful picture of how Jesus broke through cultural attitudes no matter what the current society and generation help. It's a beautiful picture of how Jesus ignored racial divides, didn't even get into that, but just ignored it, and how he showed love and concern for all people equally. And how Jesus therefore purposely went and reached out beyond that, even to this despised, immoral woman who most other people looked at as an outcast and with nothing to do with. I'd encourage you, just contemplate John chapter 3 and John chapter 4. In John 3, Jesus reaches out and ministers to a very religious, moral, but yet spiritually lost man, Nicodemus. In John chapter 4, we see Jesus reaching out to the other end of the spectrum to a very immoral woman who was pagan and was, if you would, all the way on the other side of the spectrum. But both of them need the Lord. Both of them need the gospel. And Jesus reaches out to both of them. And the reason he needed to go through Samaria, you could say, was not practical. It was spiritual. It was a spiritual reason because he wanted to help and minister to one woman's needy soul. And for you and I this morning, as an application for us, sometimes the Lord may lead you. Sometimes the Lord may guide me on a path to do something in our life that is not the most practical. And maybe he may lead you in a direction in whatever it is you're doing, your travels, your business affairs, your everyday activities, how you go about something. And sometimes the Lord may lead you in a path that's not the most logical and practical. And the reason is because there's a person that he wants to connect you with along that way so that you can reach out to or love or minister to in some way. There's someone who may need help and ministry and God sees that person 
And so he may send you the unusual way, not the most logical way, not the most practical way. And sometimes, listen, gang, the soul of one person is more important than your time. And the soul of one person may be more important than, again, you saving money, saving time, being esteemed, being approved. You know, we, we just want to do everything efficiently, logically. I understand that. But sometimes God steps outside of logic and he says, listen, souls of human beings are more important than keeping the right amount of time under your belt. Or, you know, well, this is not efficient. This is going to cost more. This is going to take more time. And God says, look, a soul is more valuable than that. And so sometimes be aware of that. Sometimes the Lord may have these divine appointments and we should be open if we sense maybe something of that nature could be happening. Maybe that's the reason. It goes on to tell us in verse 5 that Jesus came with his disciples to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there. So again, Jacob had bought that plot of ground you can read about it in Genesis chapter 33 years ago, centuries ago. Sychar was identified with the area of Shechem that we know of. And on Jacob's deathbed, he then gave that plot of ground to his son Joseph out of the uh, sons of Israel. But it's remained known, we can see here, it remained known as being the place of Jacob's well, the one who had originally purchased that area if you would, and establish that well there. Verse 6 tells us that when they got to this place called Jacob's well there in Samaria, Jesus, therefore, being wearied from his journey, sat thus by the well, and it was about the sixth hour, about noontime. And a woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. And verse 8 lets us know his disciples had already gone away into the city to buy food. So as Jesus and the disciples arrive at the well, Jesus is weary, he's tired, and maybe he even told the disciples he was too tired and so that he would sit there and they volunteered to go into the city now to procure some supplies and food for them, which perfectly again leaves Jesus right there at that well alone, setting up the opportunity for the Father's divine appointment in this private meeting who they knew this woman would be coming out to the well. And notice a few things here. First of all, what Jesus experienced, which we shouldn't overlook. Verse 6 tells us that Jesus' humanity is clearly revealed. Look what it says by him feeling exhaustion. You see what it says there in verse 6? It says that Jesus, being wearied from the journey, sat down by the well. It had been a long journey on foot, in hot mid-eastern climate, this is the hottest part of the day. And as a result, it says that Jesus, again, showing his full humanity, was weary. He was tired. He was exhausted. He was drained, if you would, humanly. And I don't know about you, but I read portions of scripture like this and I say, wow, I can relate to that once in a while. Perhaps this morning you could say, wow, I feel a little weary. And Jesus knows what it's like to be weary. Maybe you're a little drained. Maybe life has been difficult and the journey has been hard and you're wearied in the journey, in the process. Well, listen, Jesus so wonderfully took on human flesh so that he could experience everything that we experience in humanity. Jesus understands and can sympathize with what it feels like to be hot, to be cold, to be hungry, to be thirsty, to feel lonely, to feel weary and bone tired, to feel weary physically, and even to feel weary maybe emotionally because of things that we're dealing with. And how wonderful to understand that Jesus can sympathize with what you're dealing with and that when you go through that, it's not as if God is aloof and he can't understand. Jesus does understand because he took a body of flesh to relate to human experience and how wonderful to be able to go to him and to know that he can fully understand and sympathize with every experience that you and I do. The setting we're told of this time is about the sixth hours, I said, or around noontime, which pictures the full potential of the hot Mideastern sun there in an arid Mideastern climate. And Jesus' disciples, as I said, have left him there alone. He's resting while they've gone into the city. And now the divine appointment starts to begin to unfold, we can see here. As Jesus sat there by the well in the heat of the day, here comes now, it says, it tells us, verse 7, this one Samaritan woman all by herself out to draw water. Now, this woman coming out to do this at high noon, which would be the hottest part of the day, is very unusual. 
In that culture, it was typically the work of women to draw and to carry the water that was needed. But normally that work was done in the early morning hours or in the late afternoon, early evening hours, because that was the coolest part of the day. So nobody, again, this was physical work, drawing water out of a well, carrying water manually. No one would ever do this kind of hard physical work in the heat of the day. They would do it in the coolest times of the day. So nobody would choose to go out at the hot part of the day when the sun is at its highest unless they don't want to interact with anybody else. They don't want to talk to anybody else. They don't want to see anybody else. They don't want to have interactions. They don't want to face others. And considering this woman's immoral lifestyle, as we read, of already having how many? Five failed marriages. And you feel guilty maybe over one. You need to accept the grace of God and move on. Five failed marriages and now she's totally given up on the institution of marriage because when Jesus spoke to her, he said, you're right, you've had five failed marriages and the man you're now living with, you're not even married to. You've given up on marriage. Now you're just living with someone that's not even your husband. That also would seem to give us perhaps a sense of maybe what this woman's reputation was in that city, how people looked upon her, how men looked at her how maybe other women looked upon her and why probably she was somewhat of a loner and an outcast and maybe avoided other people purposely. It's likely because of her background and lifestyle. She was probably known as a pretty immoral woman. That was the reputation that she had developed because of perhaps her own poor choices and her immoral living and probably somewhat maybe even rejected and shunned by others and probably had grown, if I can begin to sympathize, probably had grown a little bit kind of hard and callous towards people and is sort of shut down emotionally and withdrawn, if you would, spiritually, probably came a little hard. And as she arrives at the well where she normally had a place and time where she was all alone and could do what she needed to do and she didn't have to face people or talk to people or get the, the cruel looks from people, as she typically would be there alone, now she finds, of all things, a Jewish male sitting there at the well, wearied from his journey, and to her surprise, to make it worse, it's not just the silent, awkward, let me do what I need to do and leave. Jesus breaches the silence and says to her, hey, can you give me a drink? Would you give me something to drink? Again, a very typical request. He's in a hot, arid culture. He's sitting by a well. This is not an unusual request. It would be a, a very courteous request. And Jesus now uses the occasion as a segue, though, to instigate conversation with her. Look how she responds, however, verse 9. This is the woman of Samaria, when he asked her for a drink, said to him, How is it that you, being, notice, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So Jesus gets what would be the typical expected response from this woman, given the animosity between Jews and Samaritans, given as well that her lifestyle had probably, keep in mind here, had probably hardened her towards men and she was probably maybe a little defensive in her attitude towards men given her life experiences. So she's shocked that he not only addresses her, but that he asks her to actually give him a drink of water and her demeanor, if you haven't picked up, and her attitude towards Jesus is somewhat seems a little bit sarcastic, a little sassy, if you would. In the way that she's responding to Jesus, she seems a little irritated and cynical, and that's for a few reasons. Again, culturally, and this was cultural in that day, men did not typically address women in public. That was considered you know, abnormal behavior for a man to publicly address a woman. Secondarily, and the larger issue, was the long-seated, deep-rooted hatred between Jews and Samaritans, which you notice by her quick response and retort in verse 9 there, she sharply reminds Jesus of, and you can sense a little sarcasm there. She right away says, excuse me, how is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? And then she says, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, who do you think you are asking me for? Are you trying to, you know, dishonor me? Are you, are you trying to, you know, in a sense, insult me? So there's, again, this, this animosity or sarcasm you can sense. 
Well, verse 10, again, a soft answer turns away wrath. Jesus answered and said, a pardon me. No, he didn't say that. He could have got really nasty with her. But he doesn't. Look, look again. He, he goes right to the root of the issue. He doesn't let her sarcasm or her smart mouth or her disrespect in any way phase him. He doesn't get drawn into the ring and put the gloves on like we do sometimes. He just keeps to the issue at hand. He's concerned about her soul. And he says to her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. So Jesus begins to reveal to her that his purpose in speaking to her was not really to get anything from her. And that might have been shocking to her with the lifestyle she had. Because typically men probably used her to get something from her. And they knew her reputation. And Jesus wants her to realize, look, my intention is pure. I'm not really looking to get anything from you. Actually, Jesus begins to indicate to her now that he wants to give something to her, to give her what he knew that she truly needed. And he's transitioning the conversation out of what's spiritual and eternal. Wanting to make her think, look at the language there in verse 10. Jesus indicates, unfortunately, that she did not know or realize, first of all, who it was that was speaking with her. Jesus says, if you knew who was speaking to you, you would have asked him and he would have given you what you needed instead. Imagine, here was God in human flesh. This was the savior of her soul speaking to her and she does not even recognize who he is. She doesn't know this is God talking to her. She's having a conversation with the living God and here she is again. What did I say? Being a little bit sassy, maybe a little disrespectful, a little smarty pants. I can't help but to wonder as time unfolded if at some point, like we do sometimes, later on when she realized who it was she was speaking with that she thought, Oy vey. I can't believe I was speaking to him like that. I can't believe that I was actually you know, handling myself. I wonder if she thought that later. And Jesus says she didn't only not realize who was speaking to her, but she failed to recognize the gift of God, Jesus says, that I could have given to you. She says, if you knew the gift of God, you would have asked of me and I could have given that to you. Now, the Bible tells us in Romans 6.23 specifically that the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And this is what Jesus wants to give everyone freely once they see their need and ask him. That's why Jesus says to her here in the 10th verse, if you knew who I was, and you knew what I could give to you. He says, you would have asked me for a drink and I would have given you, he says there, living water. I would have given you living water. Now, Jesus is describing, if you would here for us, the gift of God, which we know is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And he's describing it in the terms of referring to it as living water that could quench the thirst, if you would of a needy soul or the innermost part of someone's spirit. There is a spiritual need in people that only the living water of God's spirit can satisfy. It tells us in the book of Revelation that God says, I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Let him who thirsts come. Whoever desires, let him take of the water of life freely. So again, in the Bible, the ministry of God's spirit, the work of God's spirit is pictured symbolically as water, life-giving water to the inward soul to quench a thirst and a need. And it's necessary, the water of life, for spiritual life to be experienced, for eternal life to be experienced. All you must do is sense your own need for it and realize it's freely available to be received if you partake of it. The problem, unfortunately, is just like with this woman in our story, is many people don't realize those spiritual realities. Many, many people don't realize who Jesus really is. They've never had a full understanding. Maybe they've never had a full explanation and they have a wrong idea about who Jesus really is. They don't realize who he is and all he has done for them. Many people just don't realize, they don't recognize their need spiritually. I just had a conversation with someone a week or two ago who you know, was raised in a church, in a religious setting, and just began to talk about them, asking questions, explaining things, and trying to talk about the 
clarity of what the gospel message really is and the enlightenment in their face of real I've never, and, and the, the words that they say in a conversation that said to me I never heard it like that before I, I never realized that makes sense now I've been going to church for years that never made sense and, and to just present to someone the clarity of simple spiritual truths and who Jesus really is and why he came and what he did for us and what he intends for us and that it's about relationship and not just religious living and, and, and to see that enlightenment. And sadly, many people don't realize who Jesus is and they don't recognize their needs spiritually. They don't potentially realize that they actually need to be forgiven of sin, that they need to satisfy their eternal destiny to be certain of heaven, that they can actually assure their eternal destiny they don't recognize these things and they don't understand that the lord is not really looking to get something from them but more than that god wants to give something to them think of the mindset of so many people in our world today when they think of god when they think of jesus when they think of church they automatically think yeah he wants to get something from me you watch tv you think it's your money that's for sure he wants to get something from me he wants to take something from me. The reality is, is, no, the Lord wants to give something to you. It's called life, and that more abundantly, a much better life than we live when we try and take the steering wheel on our own and steer our own life. Listen, do you really think you're going to do better with your life than God will? You know, people have this mindset, oh, I don't want to give my life to Jesus. If I give him that, boy, boy. Do you really think you have a better plan for your life? Do, you real, do we really think we would do better with our life rather than the Lord saying, Look, how about you just give me your sin and I'll give you the life that I've always intended for you to live. And it's a much better life. And it's so sad that the devil has deceived people to not realize the wonderful thing that Jesus wants to give, the gift of God and the living water that would satisfy deeply. Well, Jesus wants to raise her curiosity now, so he, he's trying to turn the conversation, but she still has in mind physical and material things rather than spiritual. You can tell, look at verse 11. It says, the woman said to him, sir, living water, what you, you have nothing to draw with. And this well is deep. Where then do you get this living water? So she, how are you going to give me water? This well is deep. You have nothing to lower down into it. And she says, if there is some other living water not coming from this well, how come us locals don't know about it? And where is it? And where are you going to get it to give it to me? Again, she's thinking about literal living water, which would appeal to her. When she uses the term living water, that would refer to living water as fresh water flowing upward from a spring if you would, an artesian well in some sense, which was far superior to well water. Again, don't think in your mind today if you have a well, same concept. Well water in that day was water that sat down in the bottom of a deep hole. So it was very prone to things like you know, mosquito and bugs and larvae and parasites and all those unpleasant things that none of us want to get when we drink water. Living water was running water. It was fresh water. It was clean. It was pure. It tasted better and it was more healthy. So this does appeal to her, this idea of living water. And so she's intrigued. But again, she's thinking very practically and not yet seeing it spiritually. So Jesus answered verse 13 and said to her, whoever drinks of this water, he says, will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst, but the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. So Jesus speaks now, take note of this, of the realities of experiencing temporal satisfaction, momentary fulfillment from worldly things versus having inner fulfillment through him which is complete and brings contentment and he's trying to draw a comparison between the two as far as temporary satisfaction do you see what he says there verse 13 temporary satisfaction whoever drinks of this water jesus says will thirst again now that was literally true in regards to literal living water in that day and age that if you drank water, whether it was well water or living water from a spring, the best of water possible, a drink of water could satisfy your desire for the moment, but it didn't eradicate the thirst drive. 
It didn't give long-term fulfillment. You would have to drink again. It did not solve the need or fulfill it completely. Eventually, a desire for thirst would return again. But in the same way, Jesus' statement is true regarding the inward thirst and the inward desire that exists in the human soul or the spirit. As I said, there is a spiritual desire or need in every person that creates a spiritual thirst. Again, listen to the psalmist. Psalm 63 says, O God, you are my God. Early will I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh longs for you in a dry and thirsty land where there's no water. Psalm 42, 1 and 2 says, As the deer pants for the water brooks, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. See, just like we all have a hunger drive and we all have a physical thirst drive, just like that we have desires and needs and drives for other things, a, a desire for love, a, a, a need for acceptance, in the same way, we all have a desire or drive or need for what's spiritual. And that spiritual drive or spiritual need created by design can only be fulfilled by God. It can only be fulfilled by the one who created that need. And, and therefore, because of that, the wells of this world can never solve or meet the needs spiritually in our life. And if we drink from all the other wells out there, we may find momentary satisfaction we may find temporary fulfillment, but we'll just end up thirsty again, if you would. Because that spiritual need can only be met by God himself and the work of his spirit. And people often drink from, listen, I did it for years. People drink from all different wells of the world, do they not? Whether it's substance abuse, whether it's relationships, whether it's entertainment, whether it's self-fulfillment, whether it's success, whether it's career, People drink from all kinds of different wells that this world has to offer. And they try this and they partake of that and they drink deeply of this and they indulge that. And we can explore all the wells that this world has to offer. And is it not true? Eventually you find they don't ultimately satisfy. They don't completely fulfill. And all they do really is leave a person thirsty again because they simply can't meet the spiritual need properly. So they leave a person empty and just dissatisfied. And worse, looking for the next well. And they're just looking for the next well. And they're drinking the next batch of polluted water that doesn't work and ultimately leaves them dissatisfied. Look, let me give you an illustration. I have a hunger drive. It's already starting to kick in gears. I'm talking to you right now. I love my wife. But after this service, if I give her a big smooch, it doesn't satisfy my hunger drive. Food satisfies that hunger drive. So I can't get emotional fulfillment to meet a physical hunger need. In the same way, if you have an emotional need and you have a need for love and acceptance, you can eat all the super duper chocolate candy factory ice cream in the world to try and pacify your emotional need, but you're probably just going to gain weight because physical food can't meet an emotional need. And see, the same is true spiritually, ladies and gentlemen. There's a spiritual need in every person. And you can try everything under the sun to meet that need and try and fulfill it. And it will be a vain, exhausting, empty, frustrating, chasing the carrot in front of your nose, drinking from well after well after well after well after well, until you drink of the living water that Jesus supplies. And that's why Jesus says in the 14th verse, but whoever drinks of the water that I give him, notice, I give, it must come from Jesus, will never thirst, complete satisfaction, inner fulfillment. But the water I give will become in him a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. Jesus says there is a water that he can supply if we come to him and drink and partake of what he offers. What he alone can give to the innermost part of a human soul by the work of his spirit. The water of Jesus is the work of the spirit of God given to us by the son of God through relationship and experience with him. Only the spirit of God can address and continually fill and completely satisfy the innermost part of a human being. Only that water of the things of God's spirit can the inner need and the inner desire of your life be fully met by 
which will then result in, and it's what every person in this room is craving for and every person in this world is craving for, contentment. Contentment. Contentment is possible. It's possible from Jesus and from the water of the Spirit that can quench the thirst so that there's not that nagging emptiness or something missing. Jesus pictures the fountain of life of His Spirit yielding forth everlasting life or salvation. But again, notice Jesus gives that eternal life. Jesus gives that spiritual life that we all need. Well, again, verse 15, she says, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst nor come here to draw. So again, she's intrigued, but she's still thinking, living water, I don't have to come to the well anymore. And he's talking about something different where you'll never thirst again. So in one sense, she's beginning to long for what Jesus is offering. She's sensing her need, but the good thing is, notice now she's asking Jesus for a drink. And she's saying, whatever you have, I'm interested in that. Well, verse 16 through 18 shows us something now, and that's this, that Jesus cannot fully offer salvation until he first addresses a person's sin. Look what happens in verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband. Now that was respectful and cultural and come here. The woman then answers and says to him, sir, I have no husband. And Jesus said, you have said well, I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband in that you spoke truly. So Jesus reveals to this woman, see it there, that he knows everything about her life. He knows everything about her life. He tells her, I know that you don't have a husband. In fact, you've already had five husbands. And now the man that you're living with, you're not even married to. And Jesus indicates to her that he has full awareness of everything about her life. And let me say something this morning. The same is true about every one of us. All of our backgrounds, all of our present life and what's going on within it, Jesus has full awareness of our lives. But this is what I treasure. That awareness Jesus had of this immoral woman's life with a pretty sketchy background, it did not stop him an ounce from still loving her and reaching out to her and pursuing her and ministering to her. He just wanted her to know that he was aware. Maybe part of it was so that when she ultimately embraced him, and down the road, she started dealing with the self-guilt and condemnation of her past, like we all do sometimes, that she could know, hey, but you know what? He knew everything about me when he took me to his side. So I may beat myself over my past, but Jesus knew what I was when he took me. He knew what he was getting up front. And that's good news that the Lord in some ways is aware, but Jesus unveils her sin here, not to shame or embarrass her, but to help her see her need because sin has a blinding effect upon us. And until we confront and face our own sin personally, we're not in a right place spiritually. One commentator said this. He said, there is no conversion without conviction. A person has to be fully convicted before they experience conversion. The reason why some people aren't following Jesus and are not yet saved is because they genuinely don't yet realize that they need to be saved. They think they're okay enough or they can somehow work it out on their own or wait. Listen, it is not till you come face to face with the reality of the blackness and the depravity of your own soul that you would then say, God, have mercy on me. I don't want to go to hell. God, take away my guilt. Take away what I am. That then, when conviction of the Spirit of God comes into a human soul, that's when conversion happens. Because a person appreciates and realizes what they need of Jesus. So Jesus, again, gently but honestly, forces her to admit her sin because once this happens, it liberates a person to then seek the help that Jesus alone can give to them. So verse 19 tells us, the woman said to him, Sir... I perceive that you're a prophet. He sure was more than that. She says, verse 20, Our fathers worshipped on this mountain. You Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where you ought to worship. Now take notice of this. The conviction of sin comes to pass, and what does she try and do? She tries to change the subject quick. This is typical human response. She says, okay, you know, and right away she diverts the conversation about where they should worship and where they shouldn't worship. And this is a perfect fitting picture of what happens. When people start to feel uncomfortable about their sin, they often don't want to deal with the reality of it, so they, they divert the subject to something else. You ever had that happen before? 
You're talking to somebody, you see conviction coming and say, well, yeah, well, what's the right church to worship at? Well, can God make a rock big enough that he can't pick up? And they don't want to deal with their own sin, so they, they divert the subject. And he or she, right away, instead of continuing on, she says, well, I don't understand. You Jews worship there. We worship on Mount Gerizim. What's the proper place to worship? Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither worship on this mountain or in Jerusalem, worship the Father. In the coming age, after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension, that was true. The protocol of worship would shift. And not even Jerusalem would be the place where the presence of God's Spirit dwelt in the temple as it had, but now the temple of God and the presence of God would be manifest and dwell in the people of God who would now be living stones and a habitation for God's Spirit. So now the church and Christians would be where the presence of God would be and where worship would no longer be limited to a location, but worship could happen anywhere because the presence of God would be at the people of God. Remember, Jesus would say, whenever two or three gather in my name, there I am in the midst. So this would begin to transition. Well, verse 22, Jesus goes on to say, you worship what you do not know, we, the Jews, worship what we do for salvation is of the Jews. So Jesus honestly disregards the fact that the Samaritans were doing what they were doing. He's, he's honest with her, not rude, but he does correct. Salvation is from the Jews and they were correct. And Jesus was the vehicle of salvation as a Jew to bring it to the people. He says, but the hour is coming, verse 23, and now is when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such to worship him. So the point Jesus is making here, we'll see in verse 23 and 24, is what is important when it comes to worshiping God is not a place or a location, but more, it's the inward condition of a person's heart. It's the inward state of a person's soul. Notice a couple things here. Notice, first of all, verse 23, that the Father is seeking worshipers. You see that there? The Father is seeking worshipers. That's what God is after most. He's not seeking workers. He's not even necessarily seeking people who will just you know, work out this holy, religious, rigid life. God is seeking worship. Because that's what he deserves. And I'll tell you, for all of eternity, we're not going to be witnessing, working. We're going to be worshiping. God's seeking worshipers. That's what God is foremost concerned with, people who will genuinely worship him. And he takes note, it seems, even it says there, of true worshipers. He's seeking true worshipers, perhaps in comparison to false worshipers. And because God is spirit, look at verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. So because of who God is, we have to connect with God and commune with him in that way. Jesus says we worship in spirit and in truth, indicating that worship is definitely to happen in a prescribed way, in a right way. First of all, in the realm and dimension of the spirit, that is our human spirit, the innermost part of us, connecting with God via the dimension and realm of the Spirit. That that is the way that we are to worship. The Spirit is the deepest, most inner part of your being and worship is indeed to be an inward, deep thing, not just mumbling through words of a song. Remember Jesus himself said this in Matthew 15, the people draw near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And he said, and in vain they worship me. So again, to worship in spirit is not just in the realm of the spirit, but the idea is we understand it's not just mumbling through some songs. That's not worship. Jesus said there are people who worship in vain. There are people who honor Jesus with their lips, but their heart is far from him. Jesus wants us to worship from the innermost part of our being. Ephesians 5 says, singing and making melody in your hearts to the Lord. Again, it's a heart thing. He wants our heart to be engaged. So we're to worship in spirit, in, in, in a right dimension, relating to God in the realm of the spirit, but also in a right manner. He says, consistent with the truth. That is what's true and accurate spiritually, doctrinally correct, not any worship. No, worshiping with a true, doctrinal, correct understanding of who God is and who he's not. That matters, that we would worship in consistency with the truth. And I think as well, 
the idea as well is with a true heart, with a sincere heart. And by that I mean this. God spoke to David about his sin and when David repented of his sin, David said this, God, you desire truth in the inward parts. In the inward parts. Which I think is a reminder of this about worshiping God in the truth. That we should not be living hypocritically and sinfully and immorally in private and using a worship life as a cover-up for what's really going on in our lives. Because God says, that ain't worshiping me in the truth. Anybody can come and sing through some songs and throw a few bucks in a basket. God says, I'm not just looking for you to do, I'm looking for worship and truth, that your heart is true and right and that you're worshiping me seven days a week by the way that you're living all day long. That then you come and bring your worship as well as you assemble with the people of God, worshiping in the truth, having a true, sincere, genuine heart. We'll look at verse 25 and 26 as we close. The woman said to him, Sir, I know that Messiah is coming who is called Christ or the Savior. And when he comes, he will tell us all things. So she knew that the Savior was coming and that he would be divinely able to know everything about people. And Jesus said to her, verse 26, I who speak to you am he. So Jesus announces who he is and he openly reveals to her at the right time, in the right manner, at the right moment, exactly who he is. He then reveals himself to her. And listen, I'll tell you, the heart of Jesus has not changed. He wants to reveal himself to each person individually. To each person individually. Notice, please, for those of us who are Christians this morning, that Jesus, when he reached out to people, he didn't just have a spiritual sales pitch. He spoke to people and he met them where they were at. Christians sometimes, we, we, we almost develop a spiritual sales pitch and we hammer, born again, born again, born again. Oh my goodness, Jesus, you didn't talk to her about being born again. He talked to Nicodemus about being born again, but he talked to her about living water and the spiritual thirst that's in her life. Speak to people in a way that you can connect with them with where they're at. Present them the truth, but reach them where they're at. Be sensitive, be loving. Dialogue with people. Connect with them with where they're at in their level of understanding so that you can reach their soul. Don't just give them a sales pitch. They will pick that up just as quick as they do the telemarketer. Show them you care about them. Speak to them where they're at. Meet them on their level. Let's stand. Let's pray together.